out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's be honest. Anyway, this week it is going to be the turn of the guitarist, Mark Thwaite, or sometimes known as Mark Gemini Thwaite, MGT, who's played with hundreds of people. I could tell you a few, but I'm not going to tell you all. He's just, you know, just trust me on this one. Starting with people like The Mission, Tricky, Pete Murphy, Spear of Destiny, Theatre of Hate, and going on and on for days. Revolting Cots, Roger Daltrey, PJ Harvey. He's very impressive. I mean, seriously impressive. And he's also got a solo career at the moment as well. Um, so, yes, he is a busy chap. So, anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, talk about this and that, mostly about cats, really. Um, that's what you do. We caught, um, Yes, we got down to the early formative years. It's a classic. Let's face it. Mark, tell us about your early formative years. We'll take it from there. I think part of it was my, my mom and my dad always had a pretty, pretty... I remember my cool record collection. Like, my dad was into Eddie Cochran and, and Roxy Music and um, Beatles and uh, Buddy Holly and stuff like that. And my mom, I remember her getting into, like, ELO. And she. my mom used to change, you know, the jukeboxes that you used to get in pubs in Birmingham in the area. Right. She, her job was to go and change the 45s in the jukeboxes. So in the 70s. So she would come home. Like, I think, she, I don't know if she was supposed to keep them, but, yeah, she'd go <laughs> and swap out, you know, the old records that were out of the charts or going out of charts with new records. And she would come home with a whole bunch of these 45s, you know, with the hole knocked out in the middle. And um, she'd, give, she'd, she'd just, like, leave them for me to play with. And I'd, play, I'd go through all these records. I remember spinning all these singles of like the sweets and ELO and bands like that and ABBA and um I think that helped get you know really get me into music definitely well, yes. that, that and my dad's records as well and my mum would always blast music really loud in the house she still does to this day she always has to play music loud when she's listening to something and she likes a lot of rock and roll as well like Queen and um yeah I think what turned me on to it was just her, she, she really got me listening to music of all kinds a lot of pop music as well but once my mate um my mate paddy at school paul bryan he got a uh, a gibson a, a les paul copy guitar um i think it was in 79 and uh i was 14 and i was really you know jealous and enamored that he had this guitar and i wanted to get one as well we were listening to we were starting to listen to a lot of heavy metal and punk rock yeah punk rock was big as you will recall yeah uh, late late 70s I, you know, I was like yeah getting records by the Pistols and the Clash and I love Generation X and the Skids and stuff like that. But I also like metal, like Motorhead and uh, a lot of the new wave of British heavy metals and bands like Scorpions and UFO and stuff. And so, yeah, I, I, when he got a guitar, that was the impetus for me to want to get a guitar. And I taught my mom into letting me buy a guitar through one of the catalogs that you could get. So I got like a cheap satellite Les Paul. Excellent. And the rest is history. So I often wonder, would I have gotten a guitar if it wasn't for my best friend at the time getting a guitar first? You know, was that the real influence yes. or would it have happened anyway? I, I don't know. I know. Well, it's interesting. But I find that interesting because my parents, 
their music taste wasn't great. So I'm really, right. I don't know about envious, but it's, it's just live, isn't it? They, my dad was probably into Elvis, but when he, when yeah. he came from the country, it was really working class. So when they got married, which was probably in the mid fifties, they had to sell everything, you know, record player and the whole lot. So, and he was right. into, and they were into country, really bad country music, you know. Right, so it right. was a bit like, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of boxcar Willie and Tammy Wynette and, you know, really twangy country music. So it wasn't until the 70s there was a record player. And it was my brother who was seven years older than me and he was into prog rock, but he had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath as well. So that yeah. was kind of those those records as well as Yes and Genesis that I kind of really liked, as well as that kind of stuff on top of the pops. But it wasn't until the early 80s that I started to sort of discover my own musical path because to be honest I was a bit too young for punk but it was more the the 80s period that I started to you know I suppose it was because because it was kind of interesting because you had that punk period then post-punk and then you know Thatcher got in 79 and then there was an alternative music scene so I went that way into music, into, you know, mm. though I have to say I do love Motorhead. And I remember Lemmy saying that he just got a guitar because he saw somebody else with a guitar at school and all these girls yeah. were hanging out with him. So he just said, yeah. I'm just going to walk around with a guitar. So, and then he was in the, was it, it the, Rockin', got, Vic, it, the, the Rockin' Vickers, wasn't he? Right. Well, he was, yeah, he was in Hawkwind first. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what he was doing before Hawkwind, but I can totally believe that quote that yeah we got one because girls I mean people often say that to me that I've got a guitar just to get girls and when I think about back then I really don't think that was the impetus I think it was that my mate got a guitar and we were just both listening to a lot of these metal and punk rock bands but I definitely discovered fairly quickly you know once I started playing in bands that you know I felt a little bit more confidence about myself that I was the guitar player in the band that was playing that night, even if it's a small time band. I'd have, yes. I'd have a little bit more confidence in going up to a girl and, and talking to her, asking to buy her a drink or something. Um, and then of course, as I progressed into more pro professional level bands, then yeah, I definitely appreciated <laughs> that it definitely helped you get girls being in a band, you know. Yes. I think part of it's yeah, just the confidence thing. It, absolutely, I mean, you know, and most people who are musicians are quite, in a way quite quiet really aren't they as well so but when yeah I was, they, I was fairly I was because a lot of people see me as a, a confident person I used to talk to people but I was pretty shy with girls when I was young definitely yes you know? so as the 80s progressed because there was that whole you know there was a huge amount of unemployment so a lot of bands I've interviewed were unemployed in the early 80s and they were on job seekers mm. and enterprise allowance they formed bands they were part of that indie world for five years before they sort of realized there was no money in music and then sort of had to do other things but but there was also that kind of goth kind of stuff as well going on so did you where were you kind of heading for during the 80s? <clears throat> Um, much like yourself, you know, uh, in the late 70s, I was listening to, you know, a lot of metal and punk rock because punk rock was just in the charts and it was exciting, you know. So, of course, I was influenced by that, you know, seeing Generation X and bands like that on top of the pops. Uh, but I was also into metal uh, and like old metal as well. So Sabbath and Deep Purple. Uh, and I liked bands like Rush. Like when I started playing guitar, I was really enamoured with the idea of being a virtuoso like Alex Lyson from Rush and sort of going off on that tangent. So I wasn't really listening to, um, you know, what we term nowadays as like dark wave or goth or anything. Well, I guess it's pre-goth really. I didn't get into Bauhaus until a bit later on. Uh, so I was listening to more metal and like electric guitar oriented sort of exciting music. Um, and I... And yeah, like I said, Alternative exploded in the early 80s and I started finding myself 
attracted to that, drifting away from, from listening to metal so much. And um, I guess the metal was kind of a teenage thing. You know, a lot of kids go through a phase when they're a teenager and they listen to metal. Yes. And you sort of gravitate to your true calling. I started gravitating towards alternative music. I loved bands like the Buzzcocks and um, um, you know, Joy Division were cool. I started getting into Bauhaus. Um, Susie and the Banshees, you know, who started off as, you know, new wave post-punk and then slowly morphed into a more darker kind of affair. Um, And um, Killing Joke and bands like that. And uh, when I started writing my own music in the early 80s, like I started writing riffs and stuff fairly early on in my musical sort of path. And uh, so in the early 80s, I was writing music and it sounded like a weird mishmash of rush inspired guitarists but blended in with like a dark wave gothic sensibility yes. to it you know and um and i like i know when the cult you know came out with the album love you know around the same time as killing joke coming out with nighttime and i was really enamored with that sound it was like almost like a hard rock sound but with an alternative dark flavor to it and uh that's the kind of direction I went in. Yes, well, absolutely. And obviously, most people must mention, because <coughs> Black Sabbath must have been sort of in your DNA because of where you grew yeah. up and also... Yeah, yeah, bands like Sabbath and Judas Priest who were from Walsall, which was six... I, I was born in Birmingham and went to school in a town called Litchfield. And Walsall, where uh, Priest were from, is like six miles from Litchfield. So these are like, lo- in our sense, they're like local bands to us, you know, yes. just part of our DNA. Sabbath played the first ever gig. The first ever gig where they played the song Black Sabbath was in Litchfield, the town I grew up in, went to school in, stuff like that, you know, so just in our DNA. But also bands like Zeppelin, you know, half of Zeppelin were from the Midlands, you know, John Bonham and Robert Plant. And, um, um, but then bands like Duran Duran were blowing up. Half of them were from the Midlands as well. I, was, I took my girlfriend to see Duran Duran in like 1982, I think it was, or 83, because she wanted to see him. And they were so like powerful live. They were like a rock band, you know, playing these pop songs. And I really got into Duran Duran and half of them were from, from yes. Birmingham area as well. So I became influenced by all of these bands, you know. Yes. Obviously the Wonder Stuff, who I ended up playing with many years later, they were from... Uh, the Stabridge area, which also wasn't that far from Birmingham and Litchfield. And they, they became influential as well. Pop will eat itself, all these bands that were from my area. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Because what, yes, because um, it was interesting. I did an interview with Miles and I, I didn't realise there was a connection because I think his uncle was in ELO, wasn't he? So he had that. That's right. Of... Yeah, that's, yeah, he's got a connection to ELO, which is brilliant. You know, uh, my, like I said, my mum used to blast a lot of ELO when I was a kid. And I still, when the ELO comes on the radio, whatever, I still get like a nostalgic feeling for ELO, definitely. Well, yeah. absolutely. I, like I think his uncle said, <clears throat> when you write, you know, when he was on his second or third album, he said, when you write in, he said, look, leave more space for your lyrics because you're going to wreck your voice if you kind of keep writing songs like that. And um, so he did. So there you go. Right. Good yeah. Tip, good tip from someone who realises what you're going to do to your voice if you're not careful. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then you obviously, it was kind of interesting because you were talking about, I mean, the one band that actually you could never say anything against, otherwise you get beaten up, was Status Quo in our mm-hmm. area. Did Quo sort of come into your orbit at all? or were My mum all... liked Quo, so she'd like blast um, <laughs> Quo. I, I had a knee-jerk reaction to Quo as a teenager, as it being a bit, you know, too 
mainstream and to old school because new wave, I was into punk and then I was into into new wave of British heavy metal, which was inspired by punk to a degree. Like if you listen to early Iron Maiden, it's got a real punk feel to the music and they had a different singer back then. So I found status quo at that time to be somewhat pedestrian and, you know, mainstream in a way because they were quite popular. Uh, I've got more of an appreciation for Quo now. I prefer their older stuff, you know, like Down Down and yes. Caroline and stuff like that. The classic stuff, you know, the earlier stuff. Um, but a lot of people are into Quo, but not my immediate circle now. You know, we weren't inspired by that. I come from the countryside. I think it was just one of those working All right, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so then how did you start to, you know, when did your first kind of band? Because you were in several sort of smallish bands. And then you went to yeah. Toronto and then you got a sort of a break kind of with the children. Yeah. Didn't you? So, yeah, so yeah, at that formed... stage, you know, were you sort of just having sort of, were you living sort of hand to mouth sort of existence at that point? Um, well, um, you said earlier about a lot of musicians getting into the early alternative scene and like sitting on the dole and job seekers allowance and forming bands and that. Uh, I got a job straight out of school. I went and got a job when I was 18 at the uh, local DHSS, you know, Department of Health and Social Security. I went and got a job um, working as an administrator in some benefits department. So although I was playing guitar before I got a job, you know, that was just in my spare time outside school. I had a band at school. Um, we had some ridiculous name like Stallion or Trans Am or something ridiculous. And it was me and Steve Eller, a drummer who went on to be the drummer for Wolfsbane, who were fairly sort of popular metal band from Tamworth. Uh, the singer from Wolfsbane ended up singing for Iron Maiden. So there's a strange link up there to what I just said earlier. Um, so we had a, a band at school. But yeah, I got a job um, after leaving school. And um, I played the bands in my spare time and I continued to work in the day and play with bands at night up until uh, I moved to London in the late 80s and then I joined um, um, I joined um, a band called The Children who were an offshoot of Sex Gang Children. It was Dave Roberts, the bass player from Sex Gang Children. He'd formed a band called Children. So I joined that and that led to a meeting with Kurt Brandon from Spear of Destiny and then I ended up playing for Spear of Destiny. So I didn't kind of start earning music money professionally from music until the late 80s. So I went through the whole of the 80s kind of struggling in small-time bands. Yes. So I had several bands in the Midlands area that I'd have a day job and then I'd do these gigs at night and at weekends. And um, didn't really get anywhere, really, until I, I met this girl who was a Brummie but lived in London and I started commuting down to see her in London. And then I moved in with her. And it wasn't until I moved to London that I started meeting some proper professional level musicians like Dave from Sex Can, Kirk Brandon from Spirit Destiny. And that, that kind of shoehorned me into you know, the, the sort of lower level, you know, professional level band thing. And I went from there. Yes, absolutely, which was quite amazing because <coughs> you suddenly, you become the, the go-to guitarist with, with the sort of, I suppose that there was a particular genre, wasn't there, with, you know, like, you know, Theatre of Hatesphere of Destiny, and then yeah. the mission, which must have been at that stage, they had just got bigger and bigger. So did it feel like you suddenly escalated quite quickly up the sort of musical ladder to suddenly well, work the, with Wayne? It, to me, it's felt like a natural progression because, um, you know, I did struggle for many years, like a lot of musicians do. I struggled in low-level bands, not getting anywhere. Um, I got the gig with uh, the children by just replying to an ad in, like, Melody Maker or something like that. And um, once I got that gig, 
um, it was then the drummer in that band, a guy called Bobby Ray Mayhem, an American drummer from Philadelphia. He, he then said, oh, I'm jamming with Kirk Brandon. Do you want to come down? He's talking about reforming Spirit of Destiny. Because at that point, Spirit of Destiny was on ice. This is the late 80s. And um, so that was a referral, and I got that gig. Um, but the mission, which obviously was a sub sub substantial step up in level, uh, yeah, they were doing arenas at the time, um, with the Carved in Sand album and stuff, they advertised in the Melody Maker and NMA that they were looking for a guitarist and a bassist, actually. And um, my girlfriend at the time, the one who lived in London who I'd moved in with, she said, oh, you should go for that. You'd be perfect. And I was like, everybody and their sister's going to apply for this. It <laughs> says the mission of looking for a guitarist. She was like, what well, you got to lose? So I ended up sending in a tape. That's back then when we used cassette tapes. This was in 90. Two, I believe it was. At this stage, I had done an album with Spirit Destiny and we were about to go on tour. And she said, you should go for that. Because Spirit Destiny were great, but the mission was obviously going to be a much bigger thing for me to do. And yes. it was perhaps, if you heard my early demos prior to joining Spirit Destiny, you'd hear that my style had a lot more in common with the mission and the cult than it did with an alternative band like Spirit Destiny. I was more leaning towards a goth rock thing. So uh, I sent in a tape and a photo and I got shortlisted to audition and, and I got the gig. So that was um, surprising in that, you know, you really, you really should sometimes follow your dream and just go yeah. for something. You know, it can happen. So it felt like uh, winning the lottery, getting that step up. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, that felt um, surprising and quite meteoric to jump from Spirit Destiny to the mission. But it was just this, the long shot of my girlfriend saying, hey, you should just apply like everybody else and see what happens. And also, I suppose at that stage, the mission had had that honeymoon period as a band. So obviously, yeah. you must have walked into a band <clears throat> a bit like Fleetwood Mac in the sort of 70s, like Buckingham and Knicks, knowing there was all this history and all these dynamics. So what's it like as a, the new person almost at work, like going into the uh, first day at yours? It was... It was easier because, like I said, they weren't just advertising for a guitarist. Uh, they were also advertising for a bassist as well. So that's half the band. Because what had happened was that they'd released Carved in Sand, I think was you know one of their biggest albums, and they'd toured the world. And then the guitarist, Simon Hinkler, this was in 1990, the guitarist, Simon Hinkler, walked out on the eve of an American tour, like the first date of the American tour. And they'd had to continue it with the roadie on guitar or something like that. And then they they kind of retreated and did an album as a three-piece where Wayne, the hussy, the singer, just did the guitars and the whole album as well as singing. It, it was a more of a dancey, dance rock direction. They didn't tour that album at all and it really hurt their career. Uh, and he also fell out at that point with the bassist, Craig Adams, the, the guy who he formed the mission with. They were both ex-sisters of Mercy. So then they were, it was without a guitarist and a bassist. He'd made the decision, I need the lead guitarist again. And, and at this point, he'd fired Craig Adams on bass, so he needed the bassist. So when I came in, there were, yeah, there was that nervousness of joining a big band. But on the other hand, I wasn't the only new guy. There was right. me on guitar. And then um, the first bassist they hired uh, from the auditions was a guy called Andy Hobson, who was actually playing in the, or had been playing in the Pretenders. Right. And so me and him. So, you know, I had another new boy with me to kind of soften the blow a bit. Wayne and Cray, uh, Wayne and Mick, the drum, Mick Brown, the drummer, were very nice, very accommodating. So it was nice and easy. Um, 
I was a good fit for the band, which is no doubt why they picked me musically. I fitted in well, you know, I could do Simon's style, no problem, because it was near to my own vibe. I could do Wayne's riffs, so he liked that. I understood how he worked. Um, so, yeah, I don't remember being too nervous about it, just that, you know, it came together fairly quickly. Andy didn't work out. We were rehearsing with him for several months and recording with him. And for whatever reason, he didn't work out. And so they got in, um, before our first gig, they got in, um, Andy Cousin, who was the bassist from All About Eve. Yeah. And, and Andy was, I got on better with Andy. So not that I didn't like Andy Hobson, but Andy Cousin, I, I felt more good good rapport with. He'd known Wayne and Craig because they'd toured together you know, All About Eve and the Mission years before. So it's, all of a sudden the band really clicked. We also had a keyboard player, uh, Rick Carter, from a progressive band called Pen Dragon. He, uh, <laughs> he was on keyboards which the mission hadn't really toured with a keyboard player before. So that was an addition to the sound. He also did some occasional guitar. So in a sense, there was three new guys, you know, so it made it a little bit easier for me to blend oh, in. Oh, yes, I can see. Because it's a bit like, you know, <coughs> how people like David Bowie used to sort of virtually start from scratch every time, wouldn't he? Sometimes yeah. with the sort of Tony Visconti, but a lot of times not. So he would just sort of literally have to pull a whole new team together, which I thought was kind of extraordinary for a new sound. Whereas obviously... Yeah. The mission you yep. did have a four, but you did have, like you said, Andy Cousins, who'd been on Eve as well. So that was quite interesting. And were, um, did you get that feeling at that stage? Because during that period, you know, we'd had that sort of the indie goth period of the 80s. Then we had that kind of dance stuff because Ecstasy came along and that sort of changed people. Yeah. People wanted to hear. Then you had Seattle, you know, with you know, never mind and, and the grunge scene. And then there was a change again, which is kind of fascinating with the sort of, I suppose, Brit pop. So did you feel that the mission, because at that point you were, that was really the, the height of Brit pop, was, did you feel the band were also looking at that kind of scene thinking, we also need to slightly look at that, that side of Yeah, that? I mean, Wayne, Wayne obviously steered the ship with the mission. It's his baby, you know, he was the principal songwriter and singer and, um, you know, with the Neverland album, which was the first album I did with the Mission, there was definitely a deliberate return to the old school Mission sound of before, you know, the carved in sand sound of the Mission. Um, and we, had, you know, when we went back to playing live, which was the first time the Mission had played live in two or three years, we were do, we were deliberately booked into like club shows, you know, smaller theatres, and the idea was to get a buzz going again because it was like a new band in a way. Yeah, you know, half the band was new. And it was going to be a new album and blah, 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 blah. So we had to start off as underdogs again, which was fun. And um, that stuff was very mission sounding. And then that album didn't do massively. I mean, it charted and stuff, but it, it, like, it wasn't a return. So like, they had top five albums, you know, with stuff like Carved in Sand and God's Own Medicine, etc. This one, it cracked the top 40, but it definitely didn't go top five. Yeah. Um, so the next album we did, Blue, you can hear there's a definite, like, Brit pop, you know, alternative rock influence on it, where Wayne Wayne was listening to all sorts of stuff. He loved PJ Harvey, he loved Oasis and um, Blur, and you know, uh, and obviously he had a big love for the band. The bands that those bands were influenced, like the Kinks and stuff like that. He was into all of that. So with Blue, it sounds a lot more like British alternative indie rock, you know. Yes. And that album, I think that album did even worse than the one that Neverland, where we actually tried to sound like the Mission again. So, and then he split the band up. So yeah, we, we dabbled and Wayne dabbled with, you know, flirting with that Britpop sound. To be current at the time, it was 1996, but ultimately it shot him in the foot. 
he ended up um, folding the bands uh, the following year, moving to America. And then when he finally reformed the band three years later and got us all back together, uh, well, actually it was a different lineup, uh, but I came back in. That next album was again a return to the mission sound. So Wayne seemed to constantly, you know, throughout his career with the mission, he would be like doing classic sounding mission albums and then doing an album that would kind of you know, rebelled against that sound and it not doing well and going back to the mission sound so he was always having this like dilemma with the sound of the band you know? yes well it is quite tricky <coughs> oh and <laughs> leading me because a couple of months ago i did an interview with a guy called mark saunders who's a producer and he and he had sort of started in the world of sort of just rock, uh, being a producer and has spent his whole life but he, then he told me that about working with tricky on that you know Tricky's yeah well classic. the funny thing with mark, the funny thing with mark saunders is that he did the mission and tricky he did oh did he, he did he did the mission album where they flirted with dance you know dance elements it was called um uh, mask and that was the album that came out the year before i joined the mission and it was very dancey you know like program beats and yeah you know, like the cure the cure had flirted with dance rock you know at the same time or the year before and so yeah. wayne did the same thing so smart saunders had done that and then yeah i got the gig with tricky down the line the reason i got the gig with tricky was um because what i just mentioned wayne had split the band up in uh, late 96 early 97 i was just kicking around not doing much I'd formed like an indie rock band called Blue Max uh, with Andy Cousin and uh, a singer called Darren Scullion and a, a drummer, Tony. And, um, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And then I got a call in early 98, would I go and audition for Tricky's band? He's looking for a guitarist who can play like Anthrax, which sounded like the strangest thing to me. And I was like, okay, because I, I had uh, Max and Quay, his first album, and of course it's very trip-hop, and yeah. there is some guitar on it, but I didn't see how the hell, you know, Anthrax thrash metal guitars played into that. I went and auditioned, I got the gig. It turned out that Scott Ian from Anthrax had played guitar on about half of the album that was about to come out called Angels With Dirty Faces. This was in 1998. And so they wanted somebody who could literally recreate his riffs uh, the previous guitarist was like a jazzer called Patrice and uh, he'd had a falling out with Tricky. So I came in more of a rocker and I could do the anthrax riffs, but I could also do the goth stuff and I could do the trip hop stuff. So I fitted in quite well. And yeah, Mark Saunders had produced Tricky. Yes. So yeah, there was a weird connection there. I know. And I only went for Tricky. It's because of Wayne breaking up the mission that I went for Tricky, which became, which later on in my career came to bite me on the arse. But he was the reason that I was in Tricky in the first place, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's kind of interesting. I suppose Mark got his big break. Actually, he did that single with uh, Bowie and Jagger, and then he did stuff with The Cure, and then he became that, God, this is the guy you need. So he you yeah. know, he talked a lot about working with Tricky on that classic album yeah. and, and how yeah. kind of interesting and bizarre the whole experience had been. Because Tricky, Tricky's a character, yeah. He's definitely, <laughs> he's, he's definitely like a really talented guy. You know, he doesn't play instruments he doesn't play keyboards or, or guitar or anything and he at, at that point he wasn't programming beats to my knowledge what he would do is just lift beats off of a records and he, he was like a magpie where he'd like take a beat from a, a peter gabriel album and take a, a keyboard line off a cocteau twins record and you know a bass line from some hip-hop record and he'd merge it all together and then work with Martina Topley Bird, his girlfriend at the time, and she'd had this amazing voice and she'd sing something on it, he'd write the lyrics. And it was amazing, but that's how he wrote music, was taking elements from other bands yes. and sticking them together, stuff that you wouldn't expect to work. 
he had this ability to really you know make stuff work where you wouldn't think it would and really when you think about it that's no different from what rock and roll bands are doing i'm just taking a riff that's influenced by <laughs> jimmy page and a drum beat that might be influenced by the buzzcocks and a bass line that might be influenced by the pistols i'm just doing the same thing in a way when i'm writing yeah, absolutely so tricky just did it as a non-musician and really talented and such a fantastic producer but uh, very very moody guy, very troubled guy, you know, very hard work to, yes, to be with, okay. but certainly on the road, you know. Yeah. But uh, the shows were amazing. It was always amazing to perform. It with. must have been. And it's interesting because I always remember Richie Blackmore once saying, because he was quite into Bulgarian folk music. So I think he, he would hear something quite, you know, on that front and then just put it into his electric guitar yeah. and, and sort of create something Precisely, yeah. that you would never we're see. All, we're, always, we're always getting some... Like when people say they're true originals, no, usually, so even Eddie Van Halen, you know, Hale's an original innovator. He's probably was influenced by something or other. Maybe it's classical music, you know, with the whole tapping or, you know, yeah. there was actually, there was a, some Spanish flamenco guitarist that did the whole tapping thing back. There's videos of them doing it in black and white back in the 60s. Yeah. It just wasn't in the mainstream, you know, Eddie Van Halen stumbled across it and made it his own. But yeah, we're all getting it from somewhere. You know, Keith Richards will famously tell you that he's just nicking riffs from, you know, all these blues guys, you know, Robert and Johnson. I was with, uh, is it Tommy Ione <clears throat> talk about that jazz guitarist who didn't have a finger, who everyone sort of... Um... Oh, uh, Django Reinhardt. Yeah, I mean, again... Got, he was playing with like two fingers and amazing, you know. Incredible. We're all getting it from somewhere. Nobody's really ever a true original. But what makes them an original is that they they take elements from maybe different things and it becomes something that you haven't quite heard before. Yeah, and absolutely. And how did you and how were you coping then on a sort of an emotional level, having sort of this kind of almost like a gig the gig economy of sort of going from one band to another band and trying to keep it together while being part of still, you know, because the nineties was still rock and roll, wasn't it? There were still yeah. elements of debauchery and the stuff that you know because remember when we were growing up in the 70s you know people would say you know why do you get into music and they go oh it's sex drugs and rock and roll obviously somewhere yeah. somewhere down the line someone said don't ever say that again just don't say drugs sex drugs because we should all be in prison so let's just forget right. but you know so how were you coping going from one kind of kind of artist to another artist while sort of trying to sort of pay the rent or trying to keep your sort of sanity because obviously you must have go right yes i have to go I'm off again for you know this next project. I mean, yeah, people will go away about this really eclectic career, and you, you went from like you know Spirit of Destiny to The Mission to Tricky to Peter Murphy and stuff like that, and it seems really weird to them, but to me it didn't. Because, you know, like I said, Wayne had split up The Mission. I was you know floundering around, you know, trying to launch a new band the following year, not really getting anywhere, and. Um, you know, the call for Tricky, you know, they, this um, session agency actually approached me. Andy Hobson had turned me on to this session agency that he'd got the gig with the pretenders through. He told me to join it and they were the first call from it was for Tricky. It certainly wouldn't have been, you know, I would never in a million years have thought, oh, I should go for a band like Tricky. So it just wouldn't have made sense to me. It yeah. wasn't even that guitar oriented, but I was kicking around with nothing to do. I really liked Max Sinclair's an album. You know, I've got fairly eclectic tastes nowadays and back then. And um, I, I, but yeah, I saw it as a, another way to earn, you know, get back onto a professional level, earn some money again as a musician and play some big gigs. I just missed playing big gigs. Usually my main motivation is wanting to play at a certain level 
and obviously if you can earn enough money to pay your rent you know yes. so yeah tricky was a definitely a, a curveball suggestion but i if you check out what i did with tricky i just did what i do i still continue to yeah, play in a similar goth rock style and you know kind of bring my personality to his music yes. certainly live and so for me i was just kind of like <clears throat> let's say a special guest star not that i'm any bigger <laughs> bigger a deal than tricky could but i kind of brought my flavor to his music that's what that's the way i saw it so it didn't seem as strange to me yeah um, but yeah it was it was obviously unusual at the time which know? was quite amazing peter yeah. murphy of course makes more sense because he's back in the you know the goth rock arena you know but i've worked well, with al jurgensen as well from ministry and well I, you know, I mean i mean you do i mean just with that pete murphy because he bizarrely i prefer his solo stuff to his uh the Bauhaus stuff i just find his solo that's stuff interesting really... a lot of people either prefer the bass or they prefer because it's two different animals completely you know it's not very gothic the solo stuff it's a lot more you know like it's nearer to roxy music than it is yeah um, you know joy division you know and how did you and and again he'd sort of formed various bands and he the early one were they called the hundred men with people like peter bonus had been yeah yeah the hundred men was like his first solo outing you know he, was, that's just the name that he called his band but obviously it's him solo ultimately. yeah and they yeah. had sort of been together for quite a few years did quite a few yeah albums. And then sort of you obviously get the call to speak, you know, how did you sort of manage to locate him? Because I expect he was based in Turkey or some. Um, Peter Murphy, um, again, this was, um, uh, I, I, I heard through the great Ryan, through the circle of musician friends that I have, you know, I knew somebody who knew Peter's guitarist and that guitarist had told my friend, you know, oh yeah, Peter's going out on tour. He hadn't toured for a few years at that point. So he was coming back out to tour to promote a new album. This was in 2005. And, uh, you know, this friend of mine said, yeah, he's, his guitarist is saying he doesn't think he's going to do the tour uh, for various reasons. It's a US tour. So me, at that point, uh, Tricky, this is in 2005. I've been playing with Tricky for several years. I'd actually rejoined the mission. Um, yeah, like I said, Wayne reformed the mission in 99 and we, we toured for a few years. At this point, I was in Tricky's band still, so I was juggling Tricky and the mission. And the only reason I was doing that was that Wayne split the mission up, you know, years before. So I, you know, I wasn't going to leave Tricky's band just because Wayne reformed the mission. He didn't even say it was going to be a full-time concern. It was supposed to be some you know, reunion shows, you know, yes. just to earn, earn a bit of money, have some fun. Um, and then he wanted to carry on doing new album. So I did a new album with the mission at the same time that I did the blowback album with Tricky. And um, it all came to a head where both bands booked a tour at the same time. And Tricky had booked me first. Wayne had told me, oh yeah, we won't be doing any touring until the, the new album comes out. This is in 2011. So uh, I felt safe to commit to tours with Tricky and we were going to tour with Jane's Addiction and with Tool and stuff like that. And then Wayne turned around and said, oh, we've been asked to do a tour. Um, and yeah, can you do it? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm booked to be Tricky. You know this, you told me we won't be touring. So he asked, can we do a tour with a stand-in? And then to cut a long story short, you know, they kept the stand-in and I carried on playing with Tricky. Uh, so I was no longer in the mission anymore. And then Tricky lost his record deal, I think a year or two later. So he wasn't touring anymore. So when it came to 2005, I hadn't been touring for a year or two. And I was just looking for something to do. Um, I was married to an American at that point who was living with me in London. And 
I decided I wanted to change. I've been in London 15 years. I wanted to go somewhere else. America seemed like the most obvious thing to do. Moved yeah. to America. Uh, my, my father had lived in America back in the um, mid 80s um, and then they'd moved to Canada. So I'd been exposed to America and always liked it. So uh, at the same time, I heard through the grapevine that Peter Murphy may need a guitarist for a US tour. So I actually found out who his management company was and I just wrote to his management company and said, Hey, my name's Mark. You know, I played for the Mission. I played for uh, Tricky. Blah blah blah. Here's my resume. Um, you know, I'd be. I'm, I'm about to move to America. You know, I knew. I knew. I. I was cool because I was married to an American. It wasn't a question mark. Yes. And um, you know, I'd be interested in doing your tour. And they wrote back and said, "Yep, yeah, Peter's very interested. Um, you know, can you send some examples?" And I got the gig with Peter with, without having to audition. And I guess that was on the strength of the resume. You know, well, I guess absolutely. being from being from a goth rock band like The Mission and then a you know, alternative, you know, almost world music artist like Tricky gave me the perfect credentials for an artist like Peter Murphy. And when you're sort of working with people <coughs> like that, do you sort of add much of your own, you know, creative input or are you sort of pretty much told what to do, you know, given the sort of the script and told to sort of do it or are you able to sort of, you know, embellish it at all? With... Um, with uh, even going back to Spirit Destiny and the Children, I did some co-writing. Uh, I was always a writer. I'd always come up with riffs and chord sequences and stuff. So I was having input fairly early on, and then with the mission, Wayne was very open and welcoming to our ideas. And so there's there's a few songs on on. The, I did like I think five mission, four or five mission albums, and on each album there's several songs that I had a strong hand in, like the music on. Yes. And so that was good. Whereas with Tricky, uh, initially, obviously, I was just playing the stuff live and just bringing my own flavour to it because there was a certain jam element that went on with Tricky Live. It was almost like you're playing in a jazz band where we could experiment and go freeform. And then eventually he'd start taking us in the studio. I would come up with my own riffs and stuff. He's not a musician, so to speak. You know, he's not a guitar player. So he, he certainly wouldn't be telling me what to play. He yeah. might go, oh, yeah, that, you know, that riff. Can you do something that's more like clouds? He would talk in abstract terms, you know, like that. <laughs> um, so I'd come up with my own guitar parts, uh, rarely getting credited for them on a songwriting point of view. But I was just glad. I'd heard that he'd fallen out with the previous guitarist over a songwriting credit. And then I got the call. So I wasn't going to fight with him over songwriting credits. Yeah. So, yeah, with, with Tricky, I was never really given a nod for songwriting credits. But in Tricky's mind, the song is like the beats, the basic progression, which might have been a bass line with a drum beat. And then the, the lyric, of course, you know, he didn't really care about the guitar line like hip hop. They don't care about that stuff. They don't see that as a writing credit. So I understood where his head was at. I didn't I wasn't offended by it. With Peter, he was open to me writing with him so I, yeah there's a few songs in Peter's collection yes. that I've had to go write on and did you, uh, and so it, it just depends on the artist absolutely and did you sort of, you know with with the people that you've worked with I mean obviously most people had had that kind of zeitgeist period where they were sort of you know top five top ten and then it slightly sort of slipped down as you do because you can't sort of still be competing in there how did you sort of find working with them knowing that they all must also know that actually they were no longer the flavour of the month and also, you know, as we're all getting older, you, you're not looking like young kids anymore. I just wondered how people like, you know, Peter or Elle 
Jorgis and all sort of, you know, Wayne, you know, were coping themselves with sort of developing their sort of musical path. Because obviously, you know, when a band splits up and most bands kind of think, no, we hate each other, split the solo stuff, not really making much money. Actually, let's get the band back together. They have to sort of take a bit of a, a reality check, don't they, to sort of think, yeah. you know, we need to pay the rent as well, as well, as well. This is our job now, isn't it? Let's face it, you know. So I just wondered how those artists cope with that kind of element of ego as well as creativity a lot of that is something that is probably going on in their own heads so it's not like Wayne would sit down with me or Peter Murphy would sit down with me or Tricky talking about oh you know um I'm having this issue where you know I've got to write stuff that's like my best-selling stuff they wouldn't have that conversation with you you would start to you would start to deduce things over time you know retrospectively oh I see what he was trying to do on that record he was trying to emulate blah 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 a previous record but yeah most of the time that would be an internal dialogue in their own head so I couldn't really comment on that really but if you look at artists repertoire and their career their, their material you can see where there's a deliberate like I said with the mission there'd be it became obvious without him vocalising it that this is a deliberate attempt to sound like the mission on this album, whatever it was called, Neverland or or Aura. We, I can tell when I hear those albums, it's definitely trying to sound like the mission of old, you know? Yes. Um, Tricky, Tricky's like a... Um, he's always trying something new. He's rarely, you know, repeating himself. Uh, that's just his style. That's him by design. So... Um, He'd pro- I don't know if he'd be uh, ever wanting to, um, you know, deliberately go, oh, I'm going to make a Maxim Quay part two. I don't think he works like that. You know, no. He's following, his, following his, his own muse at all times. But obviously, you know, trying to sort of keep yourself sort of like focused as well as sort of, I wouldn't mm. say clean, but, you know, like you realise that people kind of slip when they start consuming too many, you know, drugs and drink. So trying to keep yourself sort of like healthy and on it and sort of having that kind of um, judgment must be quite an important part of your own sort of life so that you're still on the gig and you're not starting to slip up. Because I've sort of done quite a few interviews with people from that sort of New York sort of punk scene of the late 70s and early 80s. And obviously that, that was kind of New York was awash with heroin. So most of those people were just smacked out and they kind of yeah. lost the plot and most of them are now dead. So trying to yeah. sort of make kind of keep that balance knack must be quite tricky for yourself at the same time as kind of making sure that you're still able to perform your um yeah what you need to do on the guitar i've always um i've been somewhat boring when it comes to that level of things i wasn't really big into drugs and i didn't drink that much either you know so and to this day you know i'm i'm just happy with a couple of beers you know i'm not big on spirits really um you know, I've been drinking more tequila recently, which is great. But I still, I, I still moderate, you know, and uh, don't hardly do any drugs at all. So uh, obviously a lot of the musicians I've played with, such as Al Jurgensen, are famous for, you know, being on really heavy drugs. Even Wayne will tell you, you know, he was heavily into drugs back in the 80s. But by the time I was touring with Wayne, he'd cleaned up his act a lot, you know. It was almost like a new, he was like a new man, you know. Yes. He was fresh, freshly married and he really wasn't heavily doing drugs anymore. Maybe some ecstasy now and again. Um, and when I'd worked with Al, he was uh, off drugs, but he was still drinking like a fish. So he was getting, getting, you know, getting totally drunk on uh, wine and stuff like that. But uh, 
me personally, I don't find it much of a, a struggle to remain on the straight and narrow. It just seems to be my general personality is to not do anything to excess. Yes, well, 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 it's obviously, and then, you know, because <coughs> it's interesting because you mentioned um, Miles earlier, but then you did a, yeah. a, a, um, a project, didn't you, with I think one of his, was it an ex-partner or somebody that had worked, Erica? Yeah, um, I, that's right, yeah, my, my, my friendship with Miles Hunt uh, goes back to being in the mission, you know, Wayne, I've seen Miles were big friends and they toured together and, uh, you know, I knew Miles from just being on the Birmingham music scene, the Midlands music scene, and I remember hanging out with the Wonder stuff even before they were signed. I remember them being on the, the scene and watching them play play gigs at places like Burberry's, which no longer exists in Birmingham and stuff. And fast forward to, yeah, we, when the Mission did our farewell tour, <coughs> the Mission have done a few farewell tours now. We did a farewell tour back in 2008, and uh, Miles and Erica were invited to perform on the shows as a duo. Erica was Mars's girlfriend and the violin player and the one stuff at that point, new violin player. And um, I got to know them both uh, more, you know, more intimately. Um, as, as you do when you're playing shows with people, you get to know them on a deeper level. And um, that led to Erica inviting me to perform on some of one of her, so her first solo album. This was around, I think, 2012, maybe the following year. And... Um, that went great, and then she asked me to, to uh, write, record with her on the following album. And then I ended up doing a, a solo album in, I started coming up with ideas for a solo album in 2015. Um, I'd had a falling out with Peter Murphy, so I was no longer in Peter Murphy's band. I wasn't in the mission anymore. And uh, um, I'm trying to think of the timeline now. I guess, so did we join? No, no, yeah, I wasn't in the mission anymore. And I wasn't in Tricky's band anymore. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll do a solo album. And uh, I got the idea to have guest singers on various tracks. And Miles was one of the people that came up. So I asked Miles if he would sing on my album. And I also asked Erica if she would sing on my album, along with I asked Wayne Hussey. Uh, I asked Peter Murphy, he declined. Um, uh, I toured with Gary Newman a couple of years before. That's another curveball we should address. But uh, <laughs> I asked Gary, he, he was too busy. Uh, but I got, I got Andy Sexcan to sing on it. Uh, Ricky Warwick, who I, who I toured with the following year from uh, The Almighty and Black Star Riders. And um, yeah, Mars and I started writing together and it, it went really well. We did like three songs like almost immediately. And it was like, wow, we could do a whole album. We just really had a a synergy and synchronicity in our writing uh, but he was busy doing a wonder stuff album and i was busy doing this album and we were like yeah we'll come back to this we'll write some more and um he finally got back to me um last year you know he was like i'm writing some new material like you know do you fancy getting involved so he sent me some demos and i added my guitars to it and some beats and uh etc etc it sounded great and then I sent him some of my demos and he added vocals to them it sounded great and I think after about four or five songs Miles turned around and said you know I think maybe this could be the making of a new Wonderstuff album so we hadn't really had that conversation and I wasn't thinking of it like that I saw of it I saw it as a side project just like the MGT stuff yeah and so yeah that's what happened we ended up just doing an entire album um of new wonder stuff and then i toured with them last year i became a member of the wonder stuff Blimey. and that felt like a real that felt like a real full circle thing because it's 
a band from the Midlands. I hadn't played in a band from the Midlands since like being a, a, right. a, an amateur musician in the 80s. You know? Well, that was interesting because I did an interview with Miles and he said, oh, this has been, the, the, this kind of year has been okay because he said he'd done all the work last year, was planned to have this year off to write yeah. material for next year. And he was one of yeah. the few, few musicians who was sort of like, actually, I'm sort of, this is what I was planning to do anyway. So he was not feeling too worried at the moment. Yeah. Which was kind of all about good timing. And then, I mean, it's interesting because your CD is so phenomenal. And then, you know, Gary Newman, who we obviously remember, you know, on top of the pops being this incredible kind of alien rock star who'd taken that kind of manta, yeah. from, um, manta from David Bowie as a sort of, you know, this kind of alien figure. So what was he sort of like to, to sort of work with? I mean, because he's... Gary, yeah, Gary's, Gary's lovely. I'd, I'd gotten to know Gary and his wife, Gemma, uh, back in the, um, the late 90s. You know, uh, Gary and his, his wife had come to mission shows and they'd befriended Wayne and uh, became friends with all of us. And um, I, yeah, Gary lived in the London area. I think he lived in Sussex or something. And, um, and I lived in London. So they started inviting me to come and hang out with them at their house with a small group of friends having parties and stuff. And so I became a, you know, sort of a, a, a good friend of those guys. And then um, in 2002, Gary's label decided to do a like a a what would you call it? It was called Hybrid, and it was like he got people in the scene to like reimagine Gary Newman songs. Yeah. And and in my case, I was asked to do it, so I did Our Friends Electric and um, This Wreckage. So I redid the music in a kind of a you know Nine Inch Nails esque industrial style because I knew that's what Gary was into. And then Gary was then um, Gary then sang on it. So it's like a reworking of one of his songs, but actually getting him to sing on it, which is quite bizarre when you think about it. Um, so it's not a, it's not a remix, so it kind of has that flavour to it. Um, and that album came out as Hybrid in 2003. So that was uh, the first time I collaborated with Gary. I was in his studio and stuff. Um, we, we mixed a track together, um, or the tracks together. Uh, that Then fast forward a few years, I'd moved to America, and then Gary moved to LA, <clears throat> maybe a couple of years after me and um he had a tour coming up and um i think robin fink the guitarist from nine inch nails was supposed to do it because robin had played on the album and then robin had got called back to play some shows with nine inch nails at the last minute so gary asked me would i step in on guitar so that's how i ended up uh being the guitarist on that tour gary gary had um had the same lineup, the British guys in his bands, um, Steve Harris on guitar, uh, Tim Muddiman on bass, uh, Richard Beasley on drums, etc., and um, Aid Fenson on keyboards. He'd had those same guys in his band for years, but for whatever reason, he didn't get Steve in to do the tour, he got me in to do the tour. So I got to do this tour with Gary, which was amazing. He's a, he's a really, uh, really nice, warm personality when you get to know him. Yes. Um, you know, he, he, he does famously suffer from Asperger's, so I know that he has, you know, it's kind of hard to get and he's in a circle and it, it, I felt I felt uh, privileged to sort of get treated as like a one of his you know, close confidant friends. Um, but yeah, real fun to tour with, all the band are great. It was uh, great, like a family sort of feeling to being on the road with those guys. Um, I would have loved to have done more, but you know, he brought Steve Harris back in who'd been his long-time guitarist, and Steve carried on being the guitarist. And uh, 
I ended up rejoining Peter Murphy's band shortly after, so it all worked out. Yes, Pete Murphy. <laughs> so when you have moments where, you know, like being at school and you have a bit of fallout and you think that's it, and then you get the call again, do you sort of go, do you have to have that conversation of like what happened or do you just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Like me and Peter had a big falling out and uh, I didn't play for his band for a couple of years. And then I get a phone call in 2018 saying um, Peter's band are in, where were they? They were in Sao Paulo rehearsing and uh the guitarist john andrews who'd replaced me a couple of years before he uh he got rushed into hospital with like stomach pains and he had to have an operation he wouldn't be able to do the tour and they were like could you get on a plane and be in sao paulo in two days and the tour starts in five days or four days or something in south america so i literally had to drop everything you know <laughs> and show up in Sao Paulo with my gear and yeah and it was funny because you know Peter and I had had this big falling out but it we just kind of we never really you know just like we just had to like nothing had ever happened you know we just yes. kind of didn't really we didn't really address that elephant in the room and, no uh, but it, it was fine you know but there was, I always remember there was a, a documentary, which I loved my documentaries on, sort of bands reform. And there was one, and they mentioned quite a few, but the police was one of them. And it was like, you know, those three members. And obviously two of them really didn't get on. And they had this massive tour and it's worth millions. So everyone was like, just please keep it going because this is our pension pot. But eventually they decided they had to have band therapy to sort it out because, you know, Stuart and Sting just were like, we're just not, ha we're the only people not having a good time and we're two thirds of the band. So, yeah. um, so I just wondered if you ever, with all the dynamics you've had with different people, whether you've ever had those kind of conversations with each other to say we need to sort of slightly, you know, speak about a few things, or has that never entered into your moment? Hasn't really. I mean, you know, I've definitely done tours where there's been a tension between, you know, myself and, you know, like there was a tension between myself and Peter. And, uh, Part of that was that I told him I was going to do a tour with Gary Newman. <clears throat> and he took it very personally. It didn't clash with Peter's tours or anything like that. Gary Newman was a, a long-time friend of mine who I'd known longer than Peter Murphy. But when I told him, he was, he could tell he was pretty offended by it. And then for the rest of the tour, he definitely treated me um, not well at all. And it ultimately left with me. It, and it culminated with me leaving the band. I just got tired of the way I was being treated. But... Uh, uh, it turned out when I sort of looked at it later was that, you know, Bauhaus were on, you know, Beggar's Banquet back in the late 70s, early 80s. And who was the biggest artist on Beggar's Banquet in the early 80s? It was Gary Newman. You know, yes. so I ended up, it was like telling him, hey, you know, I'm going to go and play with this much more attractive and much more successful artist that was much bigger than you. It's almost like I was rubbing his nose in it. And I didn't realise this at all. You know, I didn't know this or think about it. So uh, now, of course, I understand why he took that the wrong way. Okay. Um, and yeah, I ended up rejoining the band in 2018, Peter's band in 2018 for this Bauhaus retrospective tour. We never discussed it, but, you know, we, we just, I think we, we treated it to each other with more mutual respect, you know, this time around. And we've had no fights at all. You know, we got on really <laughs> well. You know, I knew what to topics to tip tiptoe around. And, I you guess know, that is, that Peter never brought it up, you know. Do you often feel, because there was another documentary, was it called 20 Feet from the Mic? You know, we were talking about the side men or women, you know, and, and they had, you know, this one had you know, Earl Slick and various other women, singers and backing singers, like the importance that if you're on stage, 
you still don't need to get into that spotlight of that person like Gary Newman or Pete Murphy or Wayne. Do you ever, do you sort of have that kind of conscious in your mind that, that you know, where you're, you know, where you are within the sort of... Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, there's always this like, sort of unspoken rivalry between singers and lead guitarists. It just, it goes on back to Jagger, Jagger Richards and, you know, Ronson, Bowie, uh, you name it, you know, there's loads of you know, uh, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, you know, th there's always this kind of battle that goes, certainly on stage where, you know, the guitarist doesn't want to upstage the singer too much, and it rarely happens. I can never upstage Peter Murphy or, or Wayne Hussey or Gary Newman, you know. But yeah, you do sometimes feel this dynamic where you're like, oh, I might be getting a little bit too much attention here, and you just naturally kind of pull back. <laughs> you know, you kind of get that feeling sometimes. You know, yeah. on stage though, it's it's partly fun and it's competitive to you know to be engaging with the audience and you know you just go with it. But to to add to that exciting mix, you also started or, or you've always had solo projects, and and you obviously have M MGT as well, don't you? As a sort of yeah, that's kind of appeared. So, how have you managed to sort of keep that going, and and also sort of you know, with other commitments, or is that something that you just have to sort of put in the background, depending on what, what, what kind MGT, of... MGT, you know, I only, I only did it because I wasn't touring with anybody at that time. I wasn't playing with Peter in 2015, or The Mission, or Tricky, and I had some time on my hands, and I'd done like a number of albums with all these bands, and I'd never done a solo record, so it was a whimsical, oh, I should put a record out as a solo artist, so it's there, you know, people can check it out. And uh, I came up with the idea of just having guest vocalists so the pressure was off me. Because I'm not a singer, otherwise, you know, I'm sure I would have done an album years before, but I don't like my voice. I don't want to hear myself singing. I'll do backing vocals and that's it. Never saw myself as a singer. I'm more like the Jimmy Page of the band, you know. Yes. You never saw, you never saw him singing. So um, I did that MGT album as a vanity sort of self solo record for fun, you know. Um, initially I just saw it as being a digital only release that can go up on Spotify and then I've done it and it, it, it was received really well you know, I did this ABBA cover with VLA Valo of him and it, it had over 3 million you know, views on, on um, YouTube and stuff and it was really well received so the label were like oh you know you should do a follow up so I did a MGT uh, Gemini Night album two years later <coughs> and uh, I did that um, I ended up putting that out on another label, Cleopatra, and um, I toured that album. Um, but yeah, I kind of have to fit that stuff around my more lucrative paying gigs, of course. Um, but it's definitely for fun. When I'm doing MGT, that's just me for fun. I'm in control. I'm the boss. You know, yeah. So that's a lot of fun. I'm not doing it for the money. Um, and and, and I've, got, I've got a new, I've got a new, a new MGT record coming out next month, actually. Have you? Um, uh, when I say record, uh, a single, there's like a new track we're releasing. It's uh, I was approached by Cleopatra, the label that I'm signed to, to do like a dark wave cover of uh, an old 70s soul hit. Um, Aces, how long has this been going on? You know, oh, an, yeah. unusual, an unusual <laughs> choice for a goth cover, right? Oh, and so I did it. Uh, I got in my friend Chris Connolly to sing on it. You know, he was like a sort of member of Revolting Cox and oh my God, yeah. Ministry, Peripheral Member, Pig Face, stuff like that. Damage Manual, he was in with Joel Wobble. And, and he was also uh, yeah, he sang on it. And it sounds great. It sounds really good. And it's coming out next month. I haven't even announced that yet. So there's a little saucy, little... Um, that is saucy because, um, 
yes, I remember because uh, yeah, he was in a very obscure Scottish band in the eighties. That's right. He's, he's from Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, and he's got a quite. A, he does a lot of David Bowie stuff, doesn't he? He kind of has a. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. 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 So he's. And so he's, yeah. So that's coming out next month, and I think it's supposed to be part of a series of you know dark wave covers of. 70s 80s pop hits you know so that's yes. the one i've asked to do and uh, me and chris have continued to write so you'll probably see more you'll probably see more mgt and chris Conley stuff coming out after that are you part of that kind <coughs> of community in is it la where you got is it martin atkins who was in public image limited and he's and he does lots of kind of amazing kind of musical projects with hundreds of other pig face that's it isn't it big face yeah that's something that chris was involved in yeah i've not had anything to do with big face i've never been approached to do that uh so i don't know martin i've never met him uh, but i'm obviously aware of it yeah so yes. um, so so going back to the mg Tea. I mean, your your sort of big one was was the Abba, you know. Um, no the Abba cover, yeah. So, yeah. so what was the kind of the moment you thought, I know what I'm going to do, knowing me, knowing you? Um, yeah, I, as a yeah, as a musician, I get moments of inspiration. And one time, I think I'd heard, you know, knowing me, knowing you on the radio or TV or wherever I heard it. Obviously, I knew it from growing up with it. And I suddenly heard it in my head as done as a really heavy, dark, you know, gothic, mission-esque style version of it. And um, what I often do is I set myself a reminder in my, you know, my calendar to say, do dark, heavy version of Know Me Knowing You. And that used to come up once a month in my calendar, literally for like maybe two or three years until, and I never did anything because without a singer, it wasn't ever going to go anywhere. I needed a singer to do it with. Wayne Hussey would have been an obvious choice, but I wasn't in the mission at that time. <coughs> and then um, when... Um, when the idea came to do a solo album, I was like, oh yeah, I should do that dark heavy cover and get somebody I know to sing on it, maybe Wayne or somebody. And uh, I ended up sending it to Vile Vallow, who was another mutual friend. And Vile came up with these, uh, from him, and he came up with these amazing vocals. And uh, it blew up really big. And of course, I think it's the combination of Vile just being a great singer, handsome chap. So the video is great. And he did an amazing version of it. And then the fact that it's just such a timelessly brilliant song I yes. think I'm a huge ABBA fan, so um, it just lent uh, it lent itself really well. It was like a respectful version of that song, you know. I didn't fuck with it too much. I just kept all the original elements intact, but just made it darker and heavier, and you know, more yes. guitar orientated, you know. Well, and it really came out great, you know. And that was the only reason I ever did that was because of the idea of doing an MGT album, you know. Yes. Like, it was like oh, I guess I should finally do that cover, you know. And I've got other reminders that pop up in my calendar for other songs that I will cover, and one day I will do them, you know. Yeah. And how have you found, because obviously, as you said earlier, you know, playing live, you know, that sort of excitement of the gig being on stage. So how's, how's it been for you this kind of particular year where you might have just said everything I had planned, you know, over Christmas for the, you know, 2020 has just had to be scrapped. I just wondered how you were sort of coping with it. It's been difficult, you know, I was about to go on tour with yet another band that I hadn't played with before. That was the Lords of Acid, the Belgian, you know, oh, yes. um, what are they called? They're like industrial kind of, you know, they're kind of like a Prodigy-esque kind of vibe, you know. <coughs> um, yeah, I was going to tour with them and I was in rehearsals in LA with them when the tour was cancelled. Like we were in rehearsals and the first show was going to be in LA like the following day and we got the call in rehearsals that, you know, 
the lockdown was happening. This is on March the 12th, I believe it happened. We were told, yeah, all venues have been told they can't have, you know, more than, you know, uh, two, 250 people in a venue. And we were booked to play, you know, 1,000, 2,000 seat venues. Right. So there's no way the tour would have been viable. So the tour was cancelled literally the day before it started. So that was very depressing. I was about to earn, you know, a decent amount of money to be on the road with them for the following four or five weeks. And uh, there was other touring plans that were in the in the pipeline for later this year. And it's all just been shelved and you know, nobody knows. So yeah, it's been quite a shock, certainly financially, because most of my income is derived from touring. You know? Yes. So does that mean that you were able to sort of at all focus on doing other projects or thinking, oh, I could do some, you know. Yeah, yeah. I've been keeping busy in the studio. I did a, I did a, um, a, an album with Big Paul Ferguson, the drummer from Killing Joke. I did an album with him um, two years ago and uh, it was very well received. And Paul started sending me new demos like earlier this year after the lockdown kicked in. So we've ended up doing a, a whole new album so we've just pretty much completed a new bpf album um which had quite a lot of input on you know adding guitars and beats and some bass and synths and stuff uh here and there um that'll be coming out hopefully uh, early in the new year so i've been busy doing that and um i recorded some guitars for david J from bauhaus and some of his new stuff um I've been writing, uh, well, collaborating with my girlfriend, Ashley Bad. She's got some new material that she's been working on. So we're hoping to put that out at some point soon. And uh, I was asked to mix uh, an album by a Scottish goth rock band, The, the Dead Seasons. So I've been mixing right. their new album. Um, and I'm also working on new MGT. So I've been working on that. So yeah, I've actually been keeping busy. You know, you, you, I've got to do something. You know? Absolutely. So. Were you amazed when you heard <coughs> by House were going to reform? Did because it because I'd done an interview with two of the members once, and um, and they was like, yes, I didn't ask that question because it was like there's just no way we'll ever reform. So like, bloody hell, I didn't even ask that question because I thought it would just be <laughs> so rude. You know? Yeah. Were you? Um, kind of... I was. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I probably know more than most about the whole dynamic of that because I've toured with both David and Peter and I'm friends with Kevin Haskins, the drummer. Yes, that's the one. You know, so they all mention things in passing and, you know, um, and I read David's book, which was obviously quite revealing on the dynamic in Bauhaus back in the day. And um, I was not that surprised because once we did the tour a couple of years ago where it was... Peter and David and myself and Mark Sutsky doing yeah, the classic Bauhaus songs and doing them really well. And you're getting like half a Bauhaus there. Um, so a lot of fans felt like they were almost seeing Bauhaus. I could tell that would probably really irk, you know, Danny Ash and Kevin. And yeah, they could be earning money doing that same thing. So yeah. it's all about them swallowing their, you know, their you know, putting aside their issues with Peter, they'd had a falling out with Peter 10 years before. <coughs> Just in case of putting that aside and earning arguably some, probably some great money if the four of them just get in a room and play some shows. Money, money talks. So money's always the main factor, really. Money and nostalgia and perhaps also 
competitiveness. You know, we were out there playing these songs, playing them really well, getting really good reviews. And I'm sure Danny and Kevin were like, fuck that. We, we could be getting paid much more money and we'll play them better. So yeah. it's, a, it's a healthy, competitive energy, you know. So I wasn't that surprised, even though, yeah, things were pretty bitter between the four of them for a while. You know? Yes, I could imagine. I could. But it's, yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's like... I'm a huge, ba- I'm a huge Bauhaus fan, so I'm, I'm you know, like if, if we're... I, I said this to Peter and to David and anybody who listened, if Danny Ash walked in, into the any venue that we were playing, I'd just be handing him the guitar. You know, to me, he's one of my heroes. I'm such an admirer of his work. This is his stuff. All I'm trying to do is just emulate and recreate it so the fans can hear something that sounds like Bauhaus. But he's the governor and... You know, I'm 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 first in line to go and see Bauhaus when they're even when I, I went and saw them play in LA with Ashley uh, last um, November, I think it was in LA, and it was just great. You know, and I, you know, it's weird for me to hear them playing a lot of stuff I'd been playing, but you know, I was a Bauhaus fan from back in the day, so it's great. I'm a big fan. I just love the fact that they're back playing those songs together. It's brilliant. Yes. And it must be quite, and uh, it's funny because they have had, well, Peter's had quite a few lead guitarists, hasn't he? So do you ever, yeah. sort of, have you ever bumped into any of the other ones in on your on your travels and gone, oh, yes? Yeah, I bumped into Peter De Stefano a couple of years ago um, at a bar in LA. Uh, he played with Peter on a tour and um, he was Paul Knight for Pyro's guitarist. Um, yeah, we chatted briefly. Uh, and I, I actually bumped into Danny Ash. Um, like 10 years ago, he was DJing. Um, when I started bumped into him, I went to a bar where he was DJing. Um, and we got chatting and I mentioned, oh, yeah, I play guitar for Peter. So we met a few times and we had kind of a chat about stuff. And uh, <clears throat> I think I've chatted with Danny a few times. He's always been really nice to me. And, you know, uh, I hope he doesn't feel rival with me. He shouldn't, because he's the guy. I'm just like, understanding, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. As far as that goes. Um, yeah. Um, and he, I remember him saying, you know, say hey to Peter, say hello to Peter for me. And that was nice. That was kind of him extending an olive branch. And I, I was happy to pass on that message. It was back when they weren't talking, you know. Yes. Oh, that that's was quite cool. nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you had an amazing <coughs> career and an amazing ability to sort of continue, you know, doing so much stuff with so many different people. I mean, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self start now, you know, like, any advice? I just wondered what you would have just thought, oh yeah, there's something, there's a couple of things I've learned over the, the decades, you know, through experience and wisdom that I've sort of would love to have just told that person. I just wondered what that would be. I think you've got to, um, I mean, there's no like secret, you know, formula to making it all happen, but um, you know, you'll know in yourself if you have that muse in you, you know, to want to write and want to perform and want to play. Um, you know, always just follow that, you know, it, you know, I'd recommend try and write, you know, try and write stuff. Don't just learn other people's songs, come up with your own compositions and always believe in yourself. And, you know, in the case of myself where I just applied to a, you know, a newspaper ad for a band or I emailed Peter Murphy's manager, or whatever, you know, I could have not done either of those things, but they both resulted in a result. Yes. And I, I probably wouldn't have applied for the mission if it wasn't for my, you know, white, uh, girlfriend at that time saying, oh, you should go for that. You, you could get it. You know, so I guess you've just got to take those chances, keep playing, keep practicing, you know. Um, 
you know, just I can't guarantee you that you'll be successful, but you're going to increase your chances of being successful at what you do if you just keep pushing and keep applying. Accept rejection. You're not going to get every gig you go for. Yes. You know, uh, just keep trying, keep pursuing it. If it's in your blood, you know, you'll just do it whether you can help it or not. You'll just naturally pursue it. Do you think your younger self would have been amazed if they'd seen what what you know what you'd be <coughs> doing sort of 30, 40 years later? Probably. I mean, you know, because I stumbled across, my mom dug out some stuff from the, the attic uh, a few years ago. And one of it was like a red binder. And in that binder, I'd forgotten about this. I used to have a Bon Tempe electric keyboard, oh, you yes. know, the, or <laughs> the organ. And uh, I'm not a keyboard player, but I, it was something I played around with before I got a guitar at the age of 13. And in this thing, I'd written out how to play the basic melody of Our Friends Electric by Gary Newman. This was when I was 13. Excellent. It was probably like, you know, 1978 or 79, maybe 14. <clears throat> and if you said to that kid then, you know, in 35 years' time, you'll be playing that song live on stage with Gary Newman, I just would have been mind-blown. <laughs> and that's what happens, you know? Yes, that is, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah, I think, I think the 13, 14-year-old Mark would have been quite astounded. Yes, absolutely. And and I guess you, your parents have seen you play live quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Both my mum and dad have come to see me play, yeah. They my mum loves it. She's quite the rocker. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny when you said your mum plays music really live around the house. I think. She does. To this day, she still does it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's amazing. Oh. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Apart from the goodbye bits, but that's a bit emotional. A big thank you to Mark for giving me the time for that interview. Hugely appreciative. Um, and that's it. If you want to contact me, you can. <laughs> this is David, C86 Show. You can, uh, yes, contact me on via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just do C86 Show or... Um, no, that's it, actually. Um, and also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, again, C86 Show. It's all there. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. Speak soon. <laughs>